0: Welcome to Reclaiming the Faith with Phil Baker, a podcast with a mission to reveal what the earliest Christians believed about the core issues facing us today. You can find links to all of Phil's resources at philsbaker.com. Thanks so much for taking the time to listen today and take a moment to share this podcast with your friends. Now, here's Phil.
1: Hey, y'all. In episode 127, today I get to interview author documentarian, and podcaster Chris White about eschatology. We discuss the pre-wrath position, the day of the Lord, his book False Christ, and much more. Please be sure to subscribe to his podcast, Bible Prophecy Talk, today. Also, if you're blessed by this episode, please consider leaving a positive rating and review on my Apple Podcast channel, Reclaiming the Faith, You can find my book, Faithful Witness, The Early Church's Theology of Martyrdom, on Amazon in digital, audio, and paperback format, so go check that out. And again, if it's a blessing to you, please consider leaving a positive rating and review there. I'm blessed to be a part of Omega Frequency along with BDK, and we put out content every week on our YouTube channel, Omega Frequency Live, so go check that out and become a subscriber. All right. Well, without any further ado, let's get into my interview with Chris White. Well, Chris White, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the program today.
2: Thank you for having me on, Phil. I'm really excited
1: about it. Absolutely, man. I've just been so blessed by your work. Um, But for those who who don't know you, can you tell? Tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to have faith in Jesus.
2: Okay, yeah. Uh, so uh, I guess, it, you know, I grew up in a nominally Christian household. My mom and grandmother were uh, really saved, but I, you know, sort of just heard the things. And, you know, I would have said I was a Christian um, and did say I was a Christian. Um, you know, around about high school, I got into all the things, uh, drugs and alcohol. I It was in a band for— Oh, I don't know. Uh, we toured for probably 10 years I probably did about 150 shows a year. And you know, it was, it was that kind of life for a long time. Um, I got saved in, um, on the internet basically. I, I, you know, among other things, things were happening and, and I was being worked on in several ways, but really the thing I point to most of all is, um, the gospel. I, I had heard for so long that Jesus died on the cross for my sins, and you know, but I had no idea what any of that meant. And uh, there was just a short time—I don't know—I'm going to say 2008, 2009, right when YouTube really started to be a thing. Um, there was just a lot of people talking about that, and I was—it it was in hearing the gospel that uh, got me saved. And I still hold a uh, strong feeling about that. I, I feel like, uh, yeah. I always want to find new and better ways to articulate the gospel, uh, clearly. Yeah. And, um, uh, then, uh, you know, I really started, I was really on fire for the Lord after that. And I started, uh, I did uh, end up quitting the band. Um, but not, I, it wasn't long story. It wasn't me that, uh, did it. It was another guitar player quit and I just saw it as an out. So I wasn't the bad guy, but, um, <laughs> The uh, then I really got into ministry, particularly to the to the new age. So I would create a lot of videos of because I sort of had a little bit of new age bent about me, not really anything serious or whatever. So I really started a ministry making videos and audio, and that's when I started the podcast to try to reach out to those people. And mostly it was about apologetics. So I spent probably oh I don't know three four five years just in apologetics dealing with people coming out of the occult and dealing with their questions and and on a daily basis really it really strengthened my face faith greatly in that um that time because i got to i got to hear the best of the best arguments you know and i didn't know the answer so i would go and look it up and try to figure it out and um so it was a great thing and somewhere along the way i got really into well i think i've always been interested in bible prophecy Mm -hmm. um But that, that led to these days, while I still do all of those things to a limited degree, I mostly have been focusing on Bible prophecy and, uh, writing books and, and, and mostly just podcasting about it. Yeah, for sure. And you
1: put out, um, an awesome video a little while back. It was seven pre-trib problems, right? Or seven problems with the pre-trib rapture. Is that correct?
2: Yeah, yeah, seven pre-trib problems and the pre-wrath rapture is a two-and-a-half-hour documentary. I really tried to, to interview the the best, you know, people on the subject, and it really is, I think, a, it's not dumbed down one single bit. It's meant to be um, everything that a person needs to know to sort of wake up from the pre-tribulational rapture from a scholarly standpoint and to realize that what I believed for so long about the pre-tribulational rapture even that's all changed in the seminaries. The pre-tribulational scholars don't teach what you think they teach anymore. They teach something totally different, and it's getting crazy. And I think a lot of people don't know that story, so that's what that film was about.
1: Yeah, and you you definitely interview some cool people, uh, Charles Cooper, Alan Kirschner, just name a couple. And uh, obviously, you know, you're you're weaving in all of your beliefs and and. Uh, and scriptures there, uh, backing up that position on the pre-wrath rapture is just, it's a great, great film. So what is the pre-wrath position and how did you come to believe it?
2: So the pre-wrath position on the rapture uh, simplified is that the rapture takes place at some unknown time after the midpoint, it could be weeks or days after the midpoint, or it could be years after the midpoint, but it will be after the midpoint. And on the day that the rapture does occur, the day of the Lord, which is the eschatological wrath of God, will begin on that same day. And uh, to to be a little more precise about it, the pre-wrath position holds that the rapture takes place at the sixth seal. In other words, the seals on the scroll, the seven seals on the scroll, are precursors that need to be opened. Uh, and once the scroll is opened, that is the wrath of God. That is to say the trumpets and bowls. And there is a, a lot to say about that, but that's the basic concept. As far as, uh, I came to believe it. Um, as I mentioned, I was doing podcasting early on in ministry. I started doing more biblical stuff and trying to do some, uh, exegesis of scripture early on, probably before I knew any better or whatever. And, um, And I started teaching about the rapture and I was basically just giving the, you know, a copy and paste pre-tribulational rapture from what I learned from Hal Lindsey so many years ago, you know, and something about doing podcasts. And I'm sure it's the same thing with pastors or whatever. Um, you know, when you speak publicly about stuff, you, you gotta be careful and you gotta be account, you're gotta be accountable for what you say. And, Mm. and people will, you'll, you'll hear from people now you'll hear wrong stuff just as much, but. You know, when you hear from those people that, you know, in the past have been right about other stuff and, you know, and you respect them and they challenge you with something, you got to look into it. And like and I was just wrong about the pre-tribulational rapture. And so um, it took it was shortly after that that I found the pre-wrath rapture. And uh, it's been it just clicked and it made sense of everything um, in so many different ways. I'm sure we'll talk about some of that, but uh, it it clicked so much that I haven't been challenged in a way. Or heard an argument against it in these many years that even comes close to to making me second guess that decision.
1: Yeah. Yeah, man. I I grew up believing in the pre-tribulational rapture like you. Um so what would you say are the strongest arguments against a
2: pre-tribulational rapture? <sighs> Well, um, I could go through some of the pre-trib problems, and I'll just briefly hit on some of them, and a brief explanation about them. Uh, these were the ones I sort of distilled and, and and think are the main issues, and you can feel free to stop me at any uh, time to, to get more detail about any of these or discuss it further. Sure. The first one is the precursor problem. This is the idea that a, a central aspect of pre-tribulationalism is the idea of imminence that they're uh can be no prophesied events before the rapture that it can come at any moment. Mm-hmm. And if there are events that are prophesied to occur before the rapture, then the entire house of cards of pre-tribulationalism uh collapses and this is by their own admission they would they would say that just as strongly imminence is is to trim, well and so the precursor problem is that there are four main things explicitly in the bible that are said to occur before the day of the lord um joel 2:31 says the sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the lord comes elijah must come before the day of the lord i believe that's in malachi um, second Thessalonians two says the man of sin will be revealed and an apostasy will occur before the day of the Lord. And this is a major problem. And it's interesting to see how the scholars try to deal with that. So the, the, the idea that there are biblical precursors, and I, I could expand on that. I think the Olivet Discourse is one long list of precursors before the day of the Lord. And to that end, I think the second main problem is the Olivet Discourse, which is simply that what the church has always known from the very beginning, from the Didache, and I would argue the New Testament, but certainly the Didache, the first writing outside of the, uh, yep. the New Testament, as far as I know, um, and I could be wrong about that. You might be more of an expert on that. Than <laughs> no, I, am. I think you're right. Uh, it, it it It's very clear that it believes that Matthew 24, 30 through 31 is the rapture, which of course a plain reading would tell anybody that it's a rapture. It says, "Then will appear in heaven the sign of the son of man, then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven with the power with power and great glory and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other." This mirrors, for example, Paul in 2 Thessalonians 2 or 1 Thessalonians 4 rather, the trumpet and the and the gathering of the elect and the clouds and all this stuff. But the problem is if that's the rapture, then Jesus just got done telling of many signs that would occur before the rapture. So it, around the 18, late 1800s, pre-tribulationalists recognized this and started a new theology that Matthew 24, 31 isn't the rapture at all, but rather Armageddon. And that just it causes so many problems. I, I think of it like fallout, uh, because not only does it contradict the the nature of that verse, but the following parables, which are things like, no one knows the day or the hour, one will be taken, one will be left, uh, they'll be marrying and giving to marriage and drink, eating and drinking up until the very day. All these things must now be about the rapture, and it has caused untold damage in pre tribulationalism, so much so that uh, modern scholars, namely Craig Blazing and John Hart uh, at Moody, and I think uh, Southwestern, if he's still there. uh, have tried to co- construct a, a new way to deal with this problem, and and it is as bad as the original problem. But uh, that's what that goes into there. The Second Thessalonians problem, which is that Paul explicitly in Second Thessalonians two says that there are two things that must occur before the day of the Lord, namely the revealing of the man of lawlessness, which he later describes as a man sitting in the temple declaring himself to uh, to be God, i.e., the midpoint, the abomination of desolation, and the apostasy, apostasia, in that the and that that uh, uh, verse, which are both things that, of course, Jesus said in Matthew 24, Matthew 24, 30 and 31 is the rapture. Then that's exactly what Jesus said. Jesus said that there would be uh, the abomination of desolation, which I think starts in verse 15. He talks about that Mm -hmm. and the falling away. Many will fall away that both things happen before the day of the Lord. So Paul is just repeating what the Olivet Discourse is saying there. And he's using the word that it will come first. It's a very specific Greek word. And the way that pre-tribulationalists deal with this most difficult problem for their position, um, are it's, it's just not good. We'll say that and go through that in the film. Uh, the revelation problem, I think this is important in that um, Revelation 6 has two things that basically explicitly say that that's when the wrath of God begins. You have the fifth seal martyrs saying how long holy and true and before you judge who live, those who uh, live on the earth and avenge our blood. And each one was given a long white robe. They were told to rest for a little longer, longer until the full number was reached, both of their fellow servants and the brothers who were going to be killed just as they had been. So, so they're asking, when will you start judging? And then later on, uh, we see that the wrath of God has happened you know these now they see the the impending sign that Joel told them to look for that the sun will be dark and the moon so that happens in revelation 6 before the day of the lord and then what do they do they hide themselves in the caves they say fall on us and hide us from the face, face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of the wrath has come and who can stand so these are big deals and then of course in context what do you see next you see the 144,000 seal, sealed sealed uh, the angels say hey don't blow on the I don't do anything yet until we see all these people. And then we see this great multitude in heaven. So it's like this perfect symphony. And when you, when you match that up with Matthew 24, it is just a really cool set of parallels. Uh, The rider on the white horse corresponds to the false Christ. The rider on the red horse corresponds to war. The black horse is famine. And these are the the, leading up to that uh, celestial disturbance sign, which is heralds the day of the Lord. Um, couple really quick others the imminence problem which is the as they say the centerpiece of this going through the verses that pre-tribulationalists use to argue for imminence is just shows what a uh, a bankrupt um, concept it is which is actually interesting i think of it almost like gaslighting because they 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 talk about imminence as this this irrefutable thing and then when you actually get someone to try to explain how these words mean imminence Um, they'll bring out things that have nothing to do with eminence. The idea that Titus 2.13 is one of their favorite uh, eminence verses, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. And they say, well, waiting for, that's kind of like no events need to happen, no prophesied events need to happen, or that it could happen in any moment. But that's not what the Greek has anything to do with. It's just waiting for. And it's interesting to see how the church fathers deal with this, because they certainly didn't think that these meant that it was imminent. They thought there would be a... Anyway, on to, I guess, the the final thing I'll mention is the early church problem, which is uh, particularly relevant, I think, to your uh, expertise in podcasts, is that the early church were – every single early church father who taught on the relationship between the church and the Antichrist believed that the church would face the Antichrist before Jesus returns. That's a very – blatant statement uh to say that that's everybody knows it everybody knows that the early church especially the anti nicene fathers when they discussed this issue they all believed that the church would be uh on the earth after the midpoint when the antichrist began to persecute the church and that the rapture would uh, rapture them out of the midst of that and you have pre-tribulational patristic scholars. I mentioned Larry Crutchfield. I've mentioned some others. Stitzinger wrote a, I don't know if he's a patristic scholar, but he certainly wrote a paper on the subject in which they describe the early church as what they call eminent intratribulationalism. That, that is to say, pre rath These mm-hmm. pre-trib scholars are saying, well, the other church was pre-wrath. But, and, and you would never know it. One of the things as a pre-tribber I thought was such a strong thing, there was this, there was this, knowing well that the early church taught pre-tribulationalism and you could go read Bibliotheca Sacra, the journal associated with Dallas Theological Seminary, and there would be these bold headlines about another document found proving that the early church believed in pre-tribulationalism. And it was all like these headlines that when you read the article, it's like, uh, no, that's not anything. What, the, what, and it goes on to this whole thing of them believing that, well, the idea was we could get into it, but they, they believed that, uh, if you could prove that they believed in imminence, uh, then you could say that uh, it doesn't matter if they believe that the Antichrist would be on Earth. Uh, sh- we're still going to call them pre-tribulational, even though they believe there would be signs before the Rapture and the Antichrist would persecute the church. We'll call them pre-tribulational if they believed in imminence. But the interesting thing is they never even prove that yeah. because they'll 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 quote a church father, say quoting Titus, saying you know waiting for the blessed hope, and then. Not quoted in context where right. the context is clearly that that church father who said waiting for the blessed hope believed that there would be multiple signs preceding the rapture, including the the Antichrist claiming to be the son of God and, and persecuting Christians and so on and so forth. So those are just uh, a few
1: yeah that's really good man and you bringing up the context issue with the uh, anti-nicene guys is is huge because like I think it's Thomas Ice will quote some stuff out of Shepherd of Hermas to try to act like uh, he believed in that 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 the church wouldn't see wrath and it's just so taken out of context but and and very clear when you read the actual paragraph and or two
2: around it, it's yeah. – I should, I should clarify there. I think that you, you're completely right about Thomas and how, how he frames that. But it was just a, a, a phrasing thing that I'm hypersensitive to. He said the church wouldn't see wrath. And they – I don't think that anybody believed that the church would see wrath at any point. It's The question is always when does that day of the Lord begin? Right. The pre-tribbers believe that the entire seven-year period is the wrath of God. Mid-tribbers believe the half of the the, uh, the seven-year period is the day of the Lord. Um, and you know, post-tribbers believe that the day of the Lord is only one 24 hour day at the end. So in other words, nobody, even including the church fathers, as far as I can tell, believe that the wrath of God was what the church would experience. But that's actually a critical thing I kind of want to hit real quick is that, that there's this, there's this concept of the day of the Lord that's so important to this, uh, this, I think the Bible really, and it's the, the new Testament writers were so, understanding of the day of the Lord, because to them, that was like their book of revelation, right? You know, they didn't have the book of revelation. They had things scattered throughout the old Testament about the day of the Lord. So you could say something like the, the last, uh, the Trump and they're not talking about the Rosh Hashanah Trump they're talking about the two silver trumpets in numbers 10 which were to uh gather the assembly and to call God to go to war on their behalf it was ex- it was became axiomatic of the day of the lord and when paul uses that that's what he's meaning not the last in a series of trump but the eschatos trump the last days trump which would do the same thing or came to be understood the thing my, my point was not that was that was was that in that Concept of the Day of the Lord. There's this idea that it, God alone will be exalted on that day. Mm. The, 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 there's no room for the Antichrist to be on Earth, you know, having parties and and everything's just hunky dory because the, because the Day of the Lord exists to be punish the wicked, and it, it and it it is you, the Antichrist is on Earth after it starts, but you don't really hear anything from him. He stops doing all the things that that I, I get the sense he's like almost in hiding or something once the day of the Lord starts, but certainly the wicked people are no longer marrying and given in marriage and thinking everything's fine. I mean, they, the, all the living things in the sea are dead at the, you know, at certain points. I mean, there's, Demon scorpions have been stinging them for five months. It's it's over, you know, for them, and that's the wrath of God. God doing damage to the to the earth dwellers, and it is so incredibly important to know that the Antichrist persecution, and when the world is happy and thinking that they're in a utopia, and they're killing Christians and they're laughing about it, and they're marrying and giving in marriage, that's not the wrath of God. It's the opposite of the wrath of God. If the wrath of God has happened was had started, then that wouldn't be going on. So that's why there's this back to back nature. As soon as the church gets out of the way, then the wrath of God on the on the rest of the world the wicked begins.
1: Okay, so you you mentioned earlier 1 Thessalonians 4, you mentioned 1 Thessalonians 5, uh, the coming of Christ and the day of the Lord. Um, are the second coming or what I would call the second coming in 1 Thessalonians 4 and the day of the Lord in 1 Thessalonians 5 two separate events or two aspects of the same event?
2: You know, this is and Great question, because in a sense, this this is what I mean when I say when I understood pre-wrath, it's like the Bible just opened up. It's like it, I, I kept finding new places where this made sense. And, yes, this is a particularly eschatological verse or whatever, but in, in other places in the New Testament, too. And I think this is, this is the crux of this issue, um, is that Pauline—well, I'm not going to limit it to Paul. I'd say just New Testament understanding of the day of the Lord— is a very weird study if you do it. And the reason it's weird, and I did this in the film, I I didn't really talk about it so much as I just, I, I made a graph of the study and there were three columns and one, and it was the usage of the concept of the day of the Lord in the new Testament. And I put in one column, good for believers, one column bad for believers and one column both. So the idea is that you can see – it's a very confusing thing because depending on where you want to go with it, you can do whatever you want to as long as you just go to the one of the columns that you like, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the day of the Lord is good for believers. No, no, no. The day of the Lord is bad for believers. No, no. What, what about we do with these where it's both? Mm-hmm. And the reason that pre-wrath solves that is the pre-wrath is just all about the day of the Lord. They're like day of the Lord – uh nuts. They just uh, and <laughs> because it's so much revolves around it. But the the idea is that the day of the Lord is a back-to-back event. The rapture occurs on the same day that the day of the Lord begins. It's that's why the rapture occurs to get them out of the way so that the eschatological wrath of God can begin. Mm-hmm. And so Paul speaks of the day of the Lord as a good thing. It's a thing that we're looking forward to. For us, it's great, but for them. It's going to come as a thief in the night for them, it's a really bad thing, yeah, because it's both good and bad. And he speaks of it on that day sometimes. And, and when he speaks of the day, he's he sometimes even, and I get Peter does the same thing, but um, you know, and, and once you see that it's both in, in a sense, Paul puts a lot of stock on the day of the Lord because what he ends up doing theologically with it is he he ties it directly, as I guess is normal, first Corinthians 15 is a good example, with the resurrection from the dead or in so much of Christian theology. And this is why it gets used so much in other places, not just in eschatological passages, because So much of Christian theology is to look forward to our eternal life Mm -hmm. uh, and and how great that is, how great of a gift it is, and use that as motivation for all kinds of things in regard to discipleship and the Christian life in general. So he he always calls us to look forward to that day and to, you know, Luke talks about when you see, you know, this sign that, remember, in Revelation 6— the, the the wicked people saw that sign and they were diving in the rocks, uh, right. you know, and and hiding. But yet Luke says, "Lift, Lift up, up your heads, because head. your re- redemption draws nigh." When you see that sign, yeah. so it's a it's a good, it's a bad thing, and it's both, and it's and it and it never it never deviates from that. Once you plug that in, then all these verses make sense. First, you know, the chapter break in between 1 Thessalonians four and five. Th- there's no need for it. He's just he's just talking about now concerning the times and seasons, brothers. Of what um, you no, you yourselves know fully that the day of the Lord will come as a thief of night. When people are saying there's peace and safety then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape but you are not in darkness brothers for that day to surprise you like a thief for you are children of light and children of day and so, and it never it never fails it always works yeah oh, that's really good so let's move to talking about your book false christ
1: which man i i love this book and i think it's so important for the times that we're living in as, you know, is this person the Antichrist? Is that person? And and so often they are not Jewish. Uh, maybe they're Muslim or, you know, whatever, a demagogue or something like that. But like uh, your book, False Christ, seems to be, I mean, it doesn't seem to be, it is saying that uh, the Antichrist will be Jewish. So like, what are some reasons why you think the Antichrist will be Jewish?
2: Well, uh, always a touchy subject. I would say, first of all, this is, you know, uh, it it can be a thing that people can springboard on and, 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 but I personally am exceedingly, uh, 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 you know, pro Israel in a sense, you know, and pro Jewish people and, and all in no way anti Semitic. It's not a part of this, but it it is, as I say, in a a debate I did fairly recently with Joel Richardson, it's like, um, it's as if, uh, God, you know, the the most true thing in the world is that one day a Jew will rule the world. Mm. That's, that's totally going to happen in the millennium. It's like the, the essence of truth that is the most true thing. And that's a big part of Satan's thing, right? He, he takes something that's true and he, and he uses it to deceive. And that's what he's doing in these end times. As far as this, uh, this concept is, or what I believe is, is the new Testament is telling us, which is that the antichrist is presenting himself as the Jewish Messiah. Will he really be of a Jewish lineage? I tend to think so. There are some verses that seem to lean that direction. But it's more important to understand that he is intending to be seen as fulfilling the yet to be fulfilled. Um, uh, prophecies about the Messiah that Jesus has yet to do, uh, which is a big thing. You know, that's one of the reasons that the Pharisees rejected Jesus, is because so it to, to them, and really probably rightly so, the the prophecies of the Messiah were 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 very political in nature, in the sense that he he was Jerusalem was going to be the capital city of the world. They were going right. to get their just desserts. Finally, they were going to be vindicated. You know, they yeah. were going to be. The capital city of the world, the, the whole world was going to flock to Jerusalem to pay homage to their Messiah. The whole world would revolve around Jerusalem. And so he's, the, the Pharisee's like, you know, you don't seem like you're getting an army ready to defeat the Romans, so you're clearly not the Messiah. Hmm. And we, of course, know that Jesus will fulfill those things uh, in the millennium and up, on the path of the, to the day of the Lord, et cetera. But, um, but the Antichrist is, I believe, going to use that against us. So Real quickly, I would say to understand the complexity of this, you really need to understand some prophecies about the Messiah that are not Always uh, mentioned. So, for example, we know, as I just mentioned, the Messiah will personally rule the world. I could go a litany of verses about that in the Old Testament and New sure. Testament. Jerusalem will be made the capital city of the world. Isaiah two, yeah. uh, uh, one through four, etc. Um, a oh form God. of temple sacrifice will begin again. Now, this is a t- difficult one. A lot of conservative scholars tend to see it as memorial sacrifices, but it's a it's a thing that Isaiah sixty six, Isaiah sixty, Isaiah eighteen, Zechariah fourteen says explicitly. And if you hold to a, a literal hermeneutic, that's what's going to happen in the millennium. Um, eth, uh, ethnically, uh, let's see. Um, I do think that the ethnically Jewish is a concept, uh, that could be, could be, um, uh Oh, I th- I'm trying to read from my notes here, trying to understand it. Sitting in the temple to accept worship. We think of that as a very uh, antichrist thing to do, right? But it's also Psalm 16, Psalm 22, right. Isaiah 53, Daniel 12. That's what the Messiah will do in the millennia. He's going to be in the temple. I don't know if he has to declare himself to be God or not, but but the, what will happen is that he's going to receive the worship of the world. People are going to uh, flock to uh, Jerusalem to pay homage to the, jesus christ as messiah that's a part of the millennium um other things and i'm just mentioning things that are yet to be fulfilled messiah things Uh, a new covenant um defeating israel uh, assyria egypt the and moab and all kinds of other things Anyway, I could go on, but these are things that the Antichrist has said to do. The Antichrist will personally rule the world. Obviously, I could go through verses there. Jerusalem will be made the capital city of the world. Daniel eleven forty-five, 45, Matthew 24, 15 through 28, 2 Thessalonians 2, 3 through 4, and Revelation 17 and 18, which is a totally different subject that I'll probably talk about here in a minute. A form of temple sacrifice will begin again. Daniel nine twenty-seven, Daniel 11, Revelation 18. A worldwide pilgrimage system to Jerusalem will occur, Revelation 13, Revelation 18, eth- uh, resurrection from the dead. So th- we don't think about this because we th- take it for granted, but but the resurrection from the dead Old Testament passages that was prophesied of the Messiah, that's a necessary thing that has to be done. Hmm. And we know that this the Antichrist seems to do this, Daniel 11, 40, uh, 5, 12, 1 through 12, 1, 2 Thessalonians 2, 8 through 12, Revelation 13, 3 through 4, 12, 4, I mean, uh, 12 14, 17, 8 and 11. It's all over the place. Of course, he sits in the temple to accept worship. It's uh, axiomatic at this point. that That's what happens at the midpoint. Institution of a new covenant, Jeremiah, Daniel 9.27. I believe that's what's happening. That that uh, when it says he makes, people call it a peace agreement. But what it is, is what it explicitly is, is a covenant. And I believe that the language of Daniel 9.27 suggests that he is not making a new covenant, but rather strengthening or making strong an existing covenant. And I believe that he does that for, for getting that doing the thing that if you read Jewish literature these days about how we will know when the Messiah comes, the answer is, well, Jeremiah 31, we're going, he's gonna restore the daily sacrifice to the temple, you know. And mm-hmm. I've literally heard them say that, you know, there's all kinds of pretenders, but the guy who restores the, t- the daily sacrifice to the temple and starts that up, that's the guy, you know, case closed. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly the thing that is detailed in Daniel 9:27, that he does. He makes this covenant with many. Um, and but it's interesting that it says. But the sacrifices stop three and a half years later, which implies that they started with the first thing. So I think that you can make a clear, well, maybe not clear, but it's certainly a defensible case in Daniel 927 that the covenant that's made with many is a, is the institution of the Mosaic covenant, getting them to do the thing. I mean, from a Jewish perspective, they have been without the ability to atone for sin for whatever it's been, I guess, 2,000 some years. So So being able to – it's an indispensable part of the Jewish religion, and it's something that they would do in a second if they didn't think it would start World War III, which it totally would. And I think that's why we we see the Antichrist as this – you look at the Antichrist and what he is. He is a warrior. He is a person that cannot be defended in battle. He has this god of fortresses. He is – um, you know, he defeats, as I mentioned, Assyria and Egypt, and he tries to defeat Edom and Moab. He does defeat Libya and, uh, and Ethiopia, all these Muslim nations. Nobody seems to talk about, hey, he seems to be destroying the, the historic biblical enemies of Israel in this mm-hmm. thing. Not to mention that he comes on the scene destroying the three of the ten kings, which I actually think is probably pictured in the Assyria-Egypt battles and, and Daniel eleven forty 40 through 45. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't really matter. The, the point is he is antagonistic towards the things that we currently think are bad, right? And he is, he is a liberator of Jerusalem. And he, and in that process, you could look at it as him restoring this glory to Israel and doing it in a supernatural way. I think, you know, in Revelation, when they talk about the reasons to worship the Antichrist, there's two two main themes that kind of come out. One is his resurrection from the dead. Um, they worship the beast whose you know, mortal wound was healed, and who can who's like the beast. But they do say that too. Who is like the beast? Who can make war with him? Right. There's this idea that he's a protector, and of course, that's what you would need if you're going to start sacrificing animals on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem today. You'd need to know that you were protected, that there was a guy who could do that, no one could beat yeah. that that this if this guy's on your side, then, then, uh, do whatever you want. And so there's this, there's this belief in his, his, it's interesting when you look at rabbinic literature about Daniel 11, 40 through 45, we know that as Christians to be the antichrist. There's no, I mean, premillennial Christians anyway, understand that to be uh, speaking of antichrist, at least from verse 36. Um, and when you read rabbinic literature, they believe that is the Messiah. They believe that the person who is doing, beating those particular enemies, because those are the ones that Isaiah prophesied that the Messiah would defeat. And the Messiah will defeat them when he, Jesus will defeat them when he actually comes in the day of the Lord. But, but it's the specific places. So they're, they're seeing this, this as a liberation. And in fact, it should be understood that that they're, they're saying that the guy who does this is the Messiah. When every Christian knows, no, no, that's the Antichrist. Um, can, can I interrupt you real quick? Yes, please. Just for
1: clarification's sake, um, I know you you get into Messiah Ben Joseph and Messiah Ben David. Is the Joseph one first, the one that's making war, no one can defeat him, but then he actually gets killed, and then Messiah Ben David is the one that's resurrected from the dead, basically.
2: Yeah, that is, uh, and I'm not sure to what degree. I don't know what if there's like different sects in um, in. You know, modern Judaism, and I'm sure there's like a literal version of it, the same thing that evangelicals have like a conservative versus non-conservative. I don't know what degree it is, but I have certainly read that in uh, old rabbinic traditions and modern uh, traditions. The Messiah and Joseph, Messiah and David, a dual Messiah thing yeah. is – how they deal with a lot of the problems because they see in Daniel, the end of Daniel 11, 40, uh, five, he comes to his end and no one will help him. But then with no change in the next verse in Daniel 12, one, it's talking about how yeah. at that time, Michael will rise against, you know, there'll be a d- great time of trouble against your people, such as never happened since the beginning of the world until that time, which is clearly the, the midpoint we know because Jesus quotes it literally in, in all of discourse. But so, this guy goes from being dead to not dead, and they see that as a resurrection, and I think rightly so. I think he is being resurrected at that point, except it's not a good thing. It's a, it's a terrible thing, and it's the great delusion. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, let's see here. Uh, I would say as far as to answer this question, we could go on to a couple other things I'll hit briefly. Um, the false prophet I think is a good argument that the Antichrist will present himself as a Jewish Messiah because namely the false prophets, well, he's called a false, false prophet, right? So it's unlikely that he's going to be, I don't know, but he does perform great signs, making fire come down from heaven, from earth in the front of people, which is a very specific Elijah thing. And that's important because in Jewish tradition, especially, and really in Christian tradition too, Elijah must come before the day of the Lord. He must point the way to the Messiah. I go through lots of, you know, leaving out a chair for the, for Elijah, Prayer for Elijah concludes every Sabbath. You know, Elijah come quickly, and I can't remember how it goes. But it's you can't be you can't be an Antichrist without, or you can't be a, a pretender to the Messianic throne without having a guy prepare the who way is a prophet. Exactly, and so yeah. I think that's what the false prophet does. And I think that's a good a good you know a, a good argument. Um, I would go through. I think in the book I go through quite a lot of other things, but I really do uh, land on. Uh, The mystery Babylon aspect, I think, is a very big subject, but one that points—it's the the thing that convinced me that the Antichrist would present himself as a Jewish Messiah more than any of these other things. Yeah.
1: So he's definitely coming to deceive the whole world, but it seems like this, you know, Satan and his his Antichrist are are particularly concerned—and maybe I'm reading too much into this—but particularly concerned with, you know, ethnic Jews and Christians trying to deceive— deceive both of those. So, uh, um,
2: I think so. I think that's exactly what's said in Matthew 24, uh, maybe starting in verse 23. If anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ or there he is. Do not believe it for false Christ and false prophets will arrive and perform great signs and wonders. So as to lead astray. So here's the key bars. So why are they doing these signs and wonders? So as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect, why are they doing it to try to deceive the elect? That's, explicitly we're being told why they're deceiving it is to try to get to the elect. Now we're told that, uh, you know, and he says that see that I've told you beforehand, if they say, look, he's in the wilderness do not go out. If they say, look, he's in the inner rooms, don't believe it for lightning comes from the East and shines as far as the West. So it will be when the coming of the son of man, he's basically saying if they're telling you that the Messiah showed up and he didn't show up by splitting the heavens, then it's not the guy, Right. Yeah. You know, he's he, and I think that's I think that's what uh the challenge of the Antichrist in so many ways is that he isn't the guy. And he's got to fake what this stuff to a certain degree because he's he can't do the real thing. So I think in part the false prophet what he does is more of an apologist. And um and explaining, well, you know, he didn't get Ammon and and Moab. They did escape from his hands. Well, actually, the, I think that's going to be one of the apologetics in the end times for people to say, well, it said the Messiah was going to defeat Ammon and Moab, and Daniel tells us that this guy didn't do it. Hmm. Anyway, it's a rabbit hole.
1: Yeah, man. So um, as he's trying to, you know, in, in a weird way cater to, to different sides to convince, like, everyone that he's the guy – do you think the Antichrist, and I I guess you're kind of answering it, will claim to be Jesus um, at least to the Christians in some kind of way, convincing them that he is like the second coming? And if so, like Mm -hmm. how do you think he would try to convince Christians to believe that?
2: Okay, Uh, a lot going on here. I'm sorry. Um, Loaded question. I think that I'll answer that question first, which is that I don't know if he's going to claim to be the return of Christ or if he's going to claim that Jesus wasn't the Messiah because Uh. he didn't fulfill the kingdom stuff, but he is because he has fulfilled it. Or probably my guess is that it's something kind of in the middle. It's the, it's some kind of sleigh, you know, sleazy satanic thing that does something convincing right in the middle. Um, but I, I don't know, but I do think that it's an important thing hit me about this, which is the context of where, how all this is happening. And I think, while it's true that i think he is doing this to deceive the elect the jewish people are there's a good portion of them that will be elect at the end of all this sure. and um, mystery babylon is speaking i believe of of jerusalem in the last days and it's a picture of the this harlot high priestess on top of you know riding the this beast who she believes is her king and husband and it says that that she she makes the nations drunk And what she makes the nations drunk on is the wine of the passion of her fornication. Hmm. In other words, she is fornicating. She is worshiping false gods, which is always what you know Israel did in the Old Testament, and, and it was called fornication, and Israel was called a harlot I don't know how many times yeah, for this right. very sin, which is to worshiping false gods. She's doing this, but it's interesting that the world sees her, the passion, the fierceness. She's found her Messiah and her husband, and she is exceedingly happy about it, and the world is drawn into it, through that sin. That's why I think, I believe she's pictured as a high priestess. And I could go into the, what she's wearing and what's on her forehead and all this other stuff, but it's, it's, it's exact parallels to Exodus about the high priest garb and, and everything that was uh, going on there. She is a, she's become this harlot high priestess telling the world that, that he is the Messiah. And it's through that. And the other thing I wanted to say about is the context of the world. Uh, the more and more I under, I believe, and this is where it gets a little bit into just believe here that, um, that the world is going to be a different place when we're we're here and we're, we will have been ruled by these 10 Kings for a while before this. And it's not going to be good and it's going to be really bad. And this guy's going to come on the scene. I don't know how many years after that, that starts or whatever. It could be a long time. It could be generations. I don't know, but he's going to deliver us from this decadent, awful, crazy system, oppressive totalitarian, maybe system and it's going to be really hard not to see the guy as a liberator, yeah. especially if he's doing, you know, quasi Christian things. He's, he's made, he's given the scepter back to Israel and he's restored Israel and the whole thing's happening again. It's in this, you know, we saw this hysteria that happened in the last two years. <laughs> right. Imagine the kind of things that we would be willing to believe if we were beaten down enough, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think that you have to realize that we're not the same kind of thing. And I, and I look at the Olivet Discourse, there's a scary part in the Olive discourse where it talks about how mothers are going to give, give their children up and, and fathers are going to give their children and children are going to betray their parents and brothers are going to betray their brothers. And and in context, what that means is they're telling people, Hey, hey, my brother here, he doesn't believe that that, 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 this guy's the real Messiah. He he believes he, he doesn't think he's the real Messiah. You need to kill him. Hmm. He needs to be killed. Mothers are going to say that about their children. It shows the psychology of like people that that just are so enthralled with this guy, uh, as a savior. Um, and I think that's what, uh, it changes things when you see it like that.
1: Man. So, um, what do you think the spiritual journey of unbel- current unbelieving Jews in Jesus, right. Will look like during the tribulation, obviously some will end up choosing him and some won't, but like,
2: what do you think that journey will look like? Wow, it's going to be a wild ride yeah. for, for Jewish people. Um, I think Zechariah tells us, um, if, as far as I understand it, that two thirds will uh, uh, after the rapture happens. um, The one hundred forty four thousand are sealed. My understanding of the one hundred forty four thousand is that it's not the totality of the 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 remnant of Israel. Right. It, it almost appears to be this protected class from each of the twelve tribes. And my guess is that they become sort of elders, if you will, in the millennium, Mm. uh, in the millennium, Ezekiel has this whole graph about how it's all going to be split by tribe. And he's got all the lines delineated and who's going to live where and all this other stuff. And I believe that they're going to be sort of governors, if you will, of that system. Mm. And, And it brings me to a point about the millennium that more and more it seems that the millennium we, we think of the millennium as an odd thing because here's this a thousand year gap, but yeah. before the completion of the thing, right? Satan's let out Gog Magog happens. And then it's finally with the eternal kingdom. What, Why and the great white throne judgment, why this, <laughs> why this gap of time where Jesus rules with the rod of iron in a real world with real people and all this stuff. I mean, what's up with that? And I think that the answer is that it was critically important to, answer, to, to to fulfill all the promises to Israel, to the letter, mm-hmm. and that they had to be the rulers of the world in this Jewish system, that this Jewish system really needed to be the, the center focus of all these things, That that promise had to exist in that way to fulfill the system. But it's not perfect, and it's not going to be perfect until the whole thing is really wrapped up in this, in the eternal kingdom. Uh, but anyway, I think I got off the subject. Oh yeah. Where, where do they go? No, that's, that's some fascinating stuff, Chris. Uh, yeah. Okay. Well, uh, so yes, the wild ride of the Jewish people. So I think that they, they first have this weird thing where again, how, how, how hard would it be to not, look for this vindication you know you were faithful all this time your ancestors through history said it was true everybody told you it wasn't but but you believed it would and here is this guy doing it fulfilling it defeating the great evil that has been controlling the world for all this time and now He's restoring Israel, and everything's right, and you guys are now the kings of the world, basically. The utopia is on, and you guys are, you know, the 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 main guys in the utopia. So, and you see this, I think, in Revelation twelve, where where uh, the two witnesses are killed in Jerusalem, explicitly, and the people in Jerusalem are it calls them Sodom and Egypt at that point because they they're rejoicing at the death of the two witnesses and they're giving gifts to one another. Israel is not in a good place after the midpoint. You know, we think of when Jesus says, you know, everybody, when you see the abomination of desolation, don't go back and get your code or anything, just flee. And what you have to understand there is that who are they fleeing from? They're, they're, they're fleeing from people that believe the antichrist. They're fleeing from people that like the idea. There's enough people to chase him out. And those people become, you know, in Revelation uh, 17 and 18, it shows this picture of opulence. You know, the merchants are getting completely rich for these years while the Antichrist literally forces the world to bring him explicitly gold, silver, and precious stones to Jerusalem to worship him. It's a real pilgrimage that the world has to essentially go to and literally exchange whatever money they have for the new money changers to go worship the antichrist or rather the image of the beast i don't think the antichrist is going to have time to sit in the temple during these this all these years but the image of the beast which satan will be behind to to receive that worship i assume um will be the thing that everybody has to do and it's this opulent thing this marriage and giving in marriage and this uh th- th- this incredibly wealthy place and and um so there's that time but i don't think of course the the real remnant Is hidden at that time to a certain degree. I think Revelation twelve talks about how when it when Satan first gets uh, in the war in heaven, Michael throws him down, etc. Satan makes it, or rather, the Antichrist makes a beeline for the woman who are uh, protected for one thousand two hundred and sixty days, and that could be just the hundred and forty four thousand, or it could be the remnant. But either way, that one third that that will not that will be refined through the day of the Lord and will uh, will be saved they'll probably be in hiding, but they're going to be much like anybody else at that time who is uh, refusing to worship the Antichrist. It's going to be a difficult road, to say the least. You, so, and then you've got... Can I interrupt you know, real quick? Do you
1: think, yes. do you think um, at that point, uh, the, the believing Jews will kind of be like uh, what was going on in Jesus' in Jesus's ministry, where you had some people like uh, Nicodemus or maybe Joseph of Arimathea who were believing in him, but are afraid of confessing him publicly because of fear of the Jews, like Jews that are afraid of the other Jews.
2: Right? Sure. I mean, of course, that's that's going to be a constant threat for everybody. Because yeah. if your if your own mother is going to turn you in, I yeah. mean, you got to you got to be careful what you say. But I think actually there's a, a nuance here that I just recently uh, thought about, which is that Revelation fourteen. Um, has this, uh, has the 144,000 standing on Mount Zion. And this is after apparently they have been, you know, this is probably at the very last moment of the seven year period. But all that to say that if, if the 70 weeks prophecy in Daniel nine, depending on how you read that, I would say it may to some degree be impossible for the remnant or one aspect of the remnant to, believe in christ until after that seven years is done because seven years is determined 70 years is determined to make an end of sin to bring in everlasting righteousness to all these different promises that you could make the case that they need that seven-year period to end before they recognize that their messiah is is uh, uh, uh jesus and i think there is this line in in Revelation fourteen that says, and I heard a voice after this moment, which I would say is after the seven-year period has ended, but before the final uh, seven bowls have been poured out in the final thirty days um, that Daniel speaks of in Daniel twelve, the one thousand two hundred ninety days. He says, and I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this: Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed says the Spirit, for that they may rest from their labors. For indeed, uh, and uh, for their deeds follow them. And later, I believe we see them. At the end, these these people that have been specifically beheaded for Christ hmm. um, in between this time are resurrected. Uh, uh, the completion of the first resurrection happens uh, right before the eternal kingdom. Yeah. In other words, I think that that there is a sense in which they actually become true believers in Christ at the end of the seven-year period and then um, still have some suffering to do before it's all over in the time of Jacob's trouble. And they do get martyred and get it. And say it like this, I think they get a chance to be martyred um, in that last—to uh, to, to to receive that uh, that benefit, uh, eternal benefit, of being martyred in that last 30 days. Some so these, of them do.
1: These would have to be people, right, that didn't take the mark, though. Jews yes, that maybe definitely. were undecided about— Oh, the, sure. Everybody yeah.
2: in this group doesn't take the mark. Yeah. Uh, and that includes, I think—I think there's some stragglers. I think that the sheep and goat judgment is some people who just didn't take the mark, too. And mm. that somehow made it through all this stuff and then get through the cheap, they finally got to get through Jesus himself and the sheep would go in judgment. But uh that they populate the millennium. That there are these mortals that populate the the millennium among the immortals.
1: Mm. That's really man, I want to go down that rabbit hole, but uh probably shouldn't. <laughs> um that, no, that's really well, cool. Yeah. No, go ahead, man. What were you gonna say?
2: No, no, it's it's a rabbit hole indeed. <laughs>
1: Well, you know, you've brought up Mystery Babylon, and uh, you're you're saying that's either Jerusalem proper or like the people in Jerusalem, like the leaders of Jerusalem. Is that how you would define Mystery Babylon? Mystery Babylon
2: um, is the city... Uh, the mother of harlots. So so she would technically be the city of Jerusalem. Okay. She is the mother of harlots, which is a, a theme in, in scripture where cities are described as parents and the daughters are uh, the inhabitants of the city. So it's a poetic view. The angel interprets it later and says it is a city. So we know it's a city. Um, the, the angel leaves no room for ambiguity with regard to that as far as I understand it. But I, I, I say it like this, that it is the last day's uh, city of Jerusalem that embraces the Antichrist and promotes his worship to the world, and that is who Mystery Babylon is. Um, I could go through some proof texts on it. Um, if you, I think one of the, I could go through a lot of proof texts on Mystery Babylon, but I like to start here because it is such an airtight case. Uh, Revelation eighteen fourteen says, "And in her was found the blood of the prophets and saints." And of all who were slain on the earth. Okay, so these are two big claims. First of all, all the blood of the prophets. Now, uh, th- this there's only I say this is, can only apply to Jerusalem because there is only one place that the prophets were ever killed in Scripture, Jerusalem. In fact, Jesus actually says that it is impossible for a prophet to be killed anywhere except Jerusalem. It says that same day there came certain of the Pharisees saying unto him, Get thee out and depart hence, for Herod will kill thee. And he said unto them, Go ye and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out devils and I do cures today and tomorrow, and on the third day I shall be perfected. Nevertheless, I must walk today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet perish outside of Jerusalem. Luke thirteen thirty one. He reiterates this point in the next verse, saying, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, which killest the prophets, so we now we have this. That 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 seems pretty pretty clear that if you interpret if that's in fact what Jesus is saying, that it cannot be that a prophet perish out of, of Jerusalem. You know, I've heard people try to say things about this and they say, well, you know There are other, you know, Paul was a prophet in in some sense in these New Testament sense that you can be a prophet and, and maybe, maybe, but I don't know if there's a distinction between like Old Testament prophets, which may have ended with John the Baptist um, and the New Testament prophets. But if there is a distinction, then then I think you could make that case. I don't know of any historical Testament prophet that's killed outside Jerusalem, but in any case, this next one is even harder. It says all who were slain on the earth are found in, in this city how can it be that uh, all the blood uh, shed on the earth is found in jerusalem and let me read something uh uh uh, It says, you might think that we need to go looking for somewhere besides Jerusalem to find a place responsible for all the blood of the, uh, the slain, but Jesus actually said that Jerusalem would be blamed for all the righteous blood shed on the earth, not just for the people who were killed there. It says, therefore, indeed, I send you prophets, wise men, and scribes. Some of them you will kill, crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. That on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berkiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar, Matthew 23, 34 through 35. So to the degree that Abel wasn't uh, slain in Jerusalem, and yet on Jerusalem, Jesus is saying that, that they're going to be accountable for Abel's blood, all the righteous blood, in fact. So these two things, this one little verse, you know, that, that the blood of the prophets and the blood of all the uh, slain are found in her, it should be all that we need to know But it gets a lot more in-depth than that as well.
0: Yeah.
1: Well, for our our friends who may be thinking that America is mystery Babylon, uh, what role do you think America will play in the Great
2: Tribulation? Well, first of all, I don't know if any I don't know of a scriptural way to deal with that. I mean, people deal with lions and things like that. And I think yeah. there's a lot of things. People people talk mostly when and this is historically true. You can look at the uh, you know, a lot of people and writings from, from history that they they look at Mystery Babylon is whatever is the worst thing in their day. And that is what their theology is. Uh and America is, you know, you could see it as like the the ruler of the world in some sense. So it's a natural fit, but it, I don't think it's a, a biblical fit. But to answer your question, where do I think America is Bible prophecy? I don't have a single biblical clue to give you except for, I, I recently have come to believe that the 10 King system, which precedes the Antichrist, Daniel uh, seven makes that clear that this 10 King thing, right. Right. uh, is, is it, exists before the Antichrist comes on the scene. And that's early days for the Antichrist, because one of the first acts, as far as I can tell, is his uh, subduing of three of those kings. Um, So a necessary precursor of the Antichrist is this this system. And I actually think that I can't prove it, but I can make an awful good case that those 10 kings must surround the Mediterranean, Hmm. that they must all be... 10 somethings around the Mediterranean uh, like previous empires uh, were trying to do and was only actually fulfilled with Rome for the first and only time. Mm. But um, whether or not that's true, the 10 somethings somewhere, I would say that I get the picture of a world that is um, totally unlike our world today. Mm. And I wouldn't doubt if these 10 guys are actually 10 kings Mm. and that the world is so different, it is incomparable. So, I don't, I, my guess is that America is long gone and completely irrelevant at this time. Mm, Wow. So, um, you,
1: you already hit on 2 Thessalonians 2 a little bit um, when you're talking about the, uh, the Antichrist and correlation with uh, Daniel 11, I believe. But um, what do you think the great deception is that Paul's referring to in 2 Thessalonians 2? And what can people do to prevent it, to prevent being deceived by it?
2: So let's read, uh, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. And with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So um, I believe that this corresponds to uh, the Antichrist resurrecting from the dead in Revelation 13. If you look at, there's a consistency in the way that the book of Revelation speaks of the resurrection of the Antichrist, in that it is the thing in which... It, 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 as much as any chief thing caused the earth dwellers to worship the antichrist, it is this healing of the mortal wound. Mm. And because you can make that direct connection of why do they marvel at the antichrist? It is because of his, his deadly wound was healed. And here we see that same concept of God doing something that only God can do, i.e. resurrect someone so that they would believe the lie So that they would be perish, you know, and, um, and I think it, there's been papers have written on this subject that people recognize that you got to have a resurrected Antichrist in Revelation 13, or you got to play fast and loose with the text. Hmm. But it brings up this, uh, difficult conundrum of, well, are you saying that Satan can raise the dead? And that gets into all kinds of, uh, non-starters, I think. There was a good paper written on it called Can Satan Raise the Dead Toward a Biblical View of the Beast's Wound, in which he essentially comes to the same conclusion. He he goes through a number of things and, and other points, but he does come to the conclusion that 2 Thessalonians 2 is speaking of the, strong, uh, of the resurrection of the Antichrist, and that it's interesting that God is the one that sends it because it solves that conundrum. Yeah, so um, what do you think
1: people can do to— uh... To avoid being deceived by that,
2: well, in a larger context, I would say the great, the strong delusion is this whole antichrist lie, right? So um, it's not just the resurrection; it is, it is the fact that everybody gets deceived by it. I recently did a uh, a breakdown of the Olivet Discourse by words spent on certain topics, yeah, and. It was this huge percentage of the Olive Discourse is warning us against being deceived from the false messiahs mm. and the false prophets. And and it, it's like that's that seems to be, if not the major point, a a major point in his entire warning. Don't be deceived by these guys. And so the question is, is is pertinent. How can we avoid it? I think I think that it's it's knowing this. You know, I mean, I feel so I feel so guarded against false teachings because I know this. And I also at the same time feel, uh, very scared for not just modern Christendom, but, but everybody because of how niche this is <laughs> and how unwanted it is and truth. I, and I, I everybody that has a theory about the end times, I believe should be exceedingly humble about it. And I tell my wife this all the time, you know, cause she believes me of course, but then whose wife doesn't believe them? Yeah. You know, there's all kinds <laughs> of false teachers whose wives believe them. So I can't use that, you know? Right. Um, but you know, I feel like it's really true and if it is, then it's a scary situation, but I've sort of resolved to the idea that, um, truth truth is like a lion. You don't need anybody to defend it. It's going to defend itself. And I just, I think mainly we're just not, we're not there yet. We're not ready for it yet. If you look at like the reformers, their belief that the, uh, you know, the antichrist was the Catholic church and things like that. And, you know, to whatever, as, as unscriptural as it was, and as much as scripture they had to twist to get there, you can understand where they were coming from. They were getting put in the iron maiden by these people for not believing the write gospel, you know, yeah. and being killed for their faith by this machine that was fake religion. And you could see the temptation to, uh, to, to twist scripture. And so I don't blame them. And to maybe some degree that helped people at the time, you know, maybe even their false teachings were used for God's glory. Um, so, but I do think the, the generation that sees the Antichrist, they need to know this stuff. They need to know it, and uh, just hope that it can get out there one day. Yeah,
1: brother, I really appreciate you taking time to do this. Do you, Do you have any final words of advice for folks that are listening to you? I mean, you you just exude a pastor's heart for the people who listen to you. So, like, what, what kind of advice do you have for us?
2: Uh, well, I think that your uh, uh, specialty with your podcast has a lot of dovetailing uh, with this with what I would say here, which is that it is the to put everything in context about where we are in the world and where we are in history and how likely it is that we're going to go through another sort of, whether it's the end times or not, my guess is that the thing that's coming isn't going to be the end times, but it's going to be just as brutal as Stalin or any of the other things that came before it. And there's going to be persecution and there's going to be death and there's going to be false teachings. And, you know, and we, we have to understand have that heart of the early church fathers who lived and breathed that world of knowing that you couldn't, you know, somebody's going to betray the place that you were meeting. Like they do in North Korea. I just saw a, a thing the other day about that the North, somebody betrayed this or this church in North Korea. They all got killed and their family got killed. Mm. Um, and that's the, that's what betrayal means in that world. And that's the world that Christianity has always been in. Mm. This is some aberration that we're in right now. We're like, we don't get killed and it's going to happen again. You can all see it. You know, um, just run the tape forward a little bit on where this is all going. And so I think it's critically important for people to price it in to to run through their head. What what would it be like if you had to die for for uh, the gospel or for Jesus's sake and to familiarize yourself? With the uh, people that have come before you that have made those decisions, but especially the scriptures that tell you a completely different story yeah. about those th- what it's like to be to be martyred to leap for joy, is what Jesus says mm-hmm. when you're counted worthy to be killed for His namesake. I mean, uh, there's an it, there's a reason why it says to focus on eternity, because and, and there seems to be and this is a guess I could probably prove if I did a study and so take it with a grain of salt, but there's something about being killed for Christ's sake, that is so 500,000 years from now in your resurrected body, is going to still be a, a crown that you're going to wear, mm-hmm. you know. Um, anyway, I, I would just say. You don't want to have to make the decision about how you're going to deal with that thing, that kind of stuff when it comes for you now or when it happens. I'm quickly reminded of Alexander Solzhenitsyn who wrote the Gulag Archipelago and and wrote about how the people that – and it was in Stalin's uh, work, work camps and all these things – and he would say that you know when the when the secret police got you and they would force you to make these false confessions and they would throw you in jail forever and nothing you said mattered because they were going to throw you in jail anyway and they were going to take all your stuff and whatever anyway and he would say that the people that couldn't deal with the fact that they that it was all over they didn't have any more stuff their family was gone they were they were slaves they were in the camp now the people that couldn't make that mental transition that hey this is now my life uh, the camp ministry has started Mm -hmm. Um, it was the people that felt that there was some injustice that they, they, they still had stuff. And if they could only convince somebody and, 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 you know, they could get back out, those people went crazy. And so it's a, it's a place that we need to get mentally to, to be that. And and if it doesn't happen, then praise God on your deathbed. You'll say, wow, thank you, Lord, that I didn't have to deal with any of that stuff. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it never can hurt to be mentally ready.